Welcome to another episode of Epic Earth, a podcast for those curious about the STEM fields and the awesome, quirky, and fun experiences and research that is taking place right now. This is episode number five, License to Chill. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we take a journey around this epic earth. episode of Epic Earth. I'm Ashley Bosa, and today I have Brian Rosenblatt. Hey guys. Scott Gavain. Hey everybody. And today we are interviewing Rainy Aberly. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Rainy. Um, so Rainy is a current PhD student here at Boise State University. She is in the geophysics program, and she works with Dr. Ellen Enderlin in the CryoGARS lab, is that right? Which is the right. Cryosphere Geophysics and Remote Sensing Lab. Super cool. And um, you work on glaciers, essentially. I do, yes. That's my jam. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Rainy. What makes you, you? Great. Okay, so I'll start out. Um, I grew up primarily in Washington State, where I was surrounded by, you know, forests, cities, snowy mountains, and I really got to see the integration of both the urban areas and how those urban areas rely on our natural resources. Um, from an early age, my parents instilled in me a love for animals, gardening, and a sense of girl power, which made me. Uh, I had a sense of confidence at an early age, which was great. And they never really had the opportunity to go to college, but they encouraged me to pursue my education from an early age. And I also wanted to note that I feel very lucky that I've always loved school and I've kind of thrived in the classroom environment. And the education system, I would say, worked pretty well for me in general, which I think we're learning more and more is not necessarily the case for many students. But that being said, um, throughout school, my favorite subjects were always music, math, and science. I was a huge band geek all through school, and during my senior year of high school, I was the band president, and I really dove into my calculus and physics courses. I was a huge nerd, so that pretty much sums me up. That's awesome. Well, I think we're all huge nerds here, so <laughs> you fit right in. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Oh, come on, Scott. We're all nerds. <laughs> yes. Um, and I love the fact that we have so many people in the STEM fields, and in science in particular, who also love music, who come from musical backgrounds. Um, that's a super fun aspect, I feel like, because there's so many different things. I remember having a physics teacher who was really into music, and like every lesson was based off of some, like musical instrument that he would bring in and show us like here's how the physics applies to musical instruments so mm -hmm. it's so cool how things can be sort of multidisciplinary and yeah definitely i think physics and music especially go really well together yeah. it's just nice the arts are just very important in general just shows like everyone who's here has done something like that so yeah that's true. true i'm not a musical person myself i tried to learn guitar for like 
ever, and it's not working out for me, but um, at least I've got my art, so. You do, you're a great artist. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, Rainy, I was wondering what instrument or instruments did you play? Ah, great question. I started out on the piano, and then I switched over, well, briefly I played the drums in middle school, and then for some reason... I got bored, and I switched to the trumpet, I think because they get a lot of the glory in the high school band. Oh, true. So I was a trumpet geek pretty much from there on out. Nice. You still yeah. play? I haven't in a few months, so my muscles are probably yeah. just totally depleted. I'm kind of scared to pick it up. <laughs> a few months? I haven't played since, like, sixth grade, so <laughs> yeah. your muscle memory is better than mine is. I'm like, what are notes on the trumpet? I don't even know anymore. Yeah. You lose those muscles really quick. It's kind of sad. Well, yeah. luckily I brought a trumpet here today. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> you don't want to hear that. <laughs> um, so, Rainy, what made you interested in your field of study or work, and um, how did you get into your field? Great question. I love hearing this from other scientists. I guess I would start with my undergraduate program. During my undergrad, I went to Pacific Lutheran University, which is a pretty small school in Tacoma, Washington, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I started out as a physics major and had thought about the idea of being an astrophysicist, but I think part of me was scared that I was going to end up driving equations on a chalkboard every day, um, which, you know, is true for some physicists, but not all physicists. I think I know a little bit more about it now, but um, I mean, during my sophomore year, I took a course from an amazing professor named Dr. Claire Todd, which was an interdisciplinary course on climate change, and that really started to light the fire for me in the geosciences. And coincidentally, she was a glaciologist that was conducting research both at Mount Rainier and in Antarctica during the Antarctic summer season. And long story short, I was hooked. So I had a friend that was also in the geosciences program and she helped me switch over to the geosciences and the following summer I was lucky enough to work with Claire Todd um, with a few other students up at Mount Rainier and there we got to hike into the backcountry, collect all different water samples and we caught a lot of incredible views of the landscape and all of the little critters that inhabit that area. And I just remember being so encapsulated by the magnificence of the glaciers there. Their size, how they moved, how different they could look even locally on one mountain. And um, I also just love the story that they tell about the history of the landscape and its interaction with the climate system. And now here I am, I'm still studying glaciers. That's really inspiring, that's super awesome. And what a great mountain slash volcano to be inspired by. Um, Truly, I love Mount yeah. Rainier. It's beautiful. <clears throat> and um, Rainy and I kind of uh, study in some aspects some of the same things. She's studying the glaciers and she talks about the glaciers on Rainier and uh, Rainier is known as one of the most deadliest volcanoes in the U.S. primarily because of these glaciers because if it were to erupt most of these glaciers would melt and cause lahars, which is what I study, um, those big volcanic mm -hmm. mudflows. And so uh, it's just interesting how a lot of our sciences also intertwine <coughs> with each other and how what Rainy does is really important for knowing the work that I do as well. So That's true, yeah. I always wish I had a volcanologist by my side when I'm in the <laughs> field. I think they know a lot of things that I don't know. 
well, you know, <laughs> I'll go with you on all your field trips. Yes, perfect. <laughs> so what sort of um, research are you working on currently here at BSU then? Yeah, so I will start with, um, I'm currently fish- finishing up my master's work where I model a glacier called Crane Glacier, which is way down on the eastern Antarctic Peninsula. And for a bit of background, in 2002, a huge ice shelf on the peninsula collapsed, meaning it broke apart and floated away into the sea, essentially. And this acted kind of like the release of a dam, which led many of the glaciers, which used to flow right into that ice shelf, to rapidly accelerate and lose more and more ice every year, or increase in their discharge. So, using observations of the surface elevation, the surface speed, and the bed elevation using some radar data sets, as well as the annual surface mass balance, we say, in the glaciology field, which is essentially how much mass enters and leaves the system through snowfall or surface melting, for example. We can model these recent conditions at Crane Glacier since that collapse to try to figure out, first of all, how long it would take the glacier to adjust to this change at the terminus now that the ice shelf is gone, as well as what we might expect in the future now that there isn't that huge ice shelf buffering these glaciers from the ocean. They're just right in contact with the ocean. Wow, that's some um, really fascinating work that you've been, and that was just for your masters. Yes, um, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so that is super cool that you were able to do that remotely, right? We have the mm-hmm. technology these days to sense the stuff from satellites which are orbiting the earth like all the time. Yes, that's true. It's very cool. <clears throat> and um, you have also done, Do um, you did a NASA internship, is that right? I did, yeah. This past summer I got to do a NASA develop internship. And what that did really that fun. entail? What were, what were you looking at with them? Good question. That was a little bit different than what I usually get to do, so it was pretty exciting. Our main goal was to detect different water bodies in the southwest U.S., mainly Arizona, using optical and radar imagery. And we were trying to create a tool for both land managers and the ranching community to be able to check up on some of those water bodies and different stock ponds that they rely on for their wildlife and just for the ecosystem and be able to assess how much water they might be able to see there in essentially real time with a couple days lag, depending on when the observations come in. That's super cool. I like how, um, and I think you're like a prime example of how we can use our sciences and apply it to other areas of research as well. So Mm -hmm. you're not just like hyper-focused on glaciers. I mean, you are, that's what the majority of your research here at BSU is, but you can also take that and apply it to you know, using remote sensing for things like other bodies of water in places which don't have glaciers, right? Are completely devoid of any glaciers. Yeah. Um, So that's super awesome. Yeah, I love sharing that with young students in STEM fields too, because sometimes when you're considering maybe summer research, you might discount geosciences if you don't want to go into a geoscience field. But there are a lot of skills that you gain from any STEM field that you can take with you. And in some ways, it kind of enhances your your knowledge and your ability to switch between different disciplines, which I think is really cool. So that NASA project, you're basically getting satellite imagery data and using it to estimate changes in surface water? 
Yeah, so we just looked at the surface extent. We didn't actually get the depth, but that can usually be a pretty good indicator for how much water is in those ponds. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so a little bit more background on Rainey is that she actually did her master's here at BSU as well. I did. She, you just offended um, in the springtime. I did, yes. And now she has decided, maybe by some coercion by one of her friends in the department, <laughs> that uh, she should stay for a PhD. Mm -hmm. And so what really like made you decide that you wanted to do the PhD? Yeah, that was something I came to, I think, I thought about it early in my master's program. Well, I guess when I was younger, I had always seen myself getting a PhD. And then when I started applying to grad school, I didn't get in the first time around. And I think that was a bit of an ego hit to me. I think I lost a little bit of confidence in my ability just to succeed in academia. But after my master's program, I just, I felt a lot more confident and I just loved the work too. I think I realized I wanted to be able to do my own work and conduct my own research and do my own exploring and apply for grants and these things. So ultimately, I came to the conclusion to do that, to get those kinds of jobs, I should probably get a PhD. It's always what I wanted to do anyway. So, yeah. That's great. <laughs> I love, um, yeah, I think on my podcast, I talk about how I was rejected for my top three schools that I first applied to for grad school. And mm -hmm. it is disheartening. But uh, like I said, it does happen to a lot of students. And it's not something to take personally. It usually has to do with funding or it's just some of these schools are very competitive to get into. Yeah. Um, it is hard not to get disheartened, but right. keep going. You'll get in there eventually if you want to. Absolutely. Um, so, Rainey, what is the best or the most fun thing that you do regarding your research? Great question. I would say, first of all, I love looking at really cool satellite imagery. That's kind of led me to some of the more remote sensing-related projects recently. Glaciers in particular are so big, and they often move very slowly, sometimes not, but usually very slowly. Um, but because we have so much data and images available at our fingertips these days, kind of like you alluded to earlier, we can get a really good picture of how quickly they're changing. And we can even start to answer some of the questions about what's causing their change, what environmental factors are leading to the glacial response that we're seeing in near real time. I would also say part of what got me hooked on glaciology is that I love visiting glaciers and trekking through glacierized environments or landscapes currently covered by glaciers. I think it's a pretty common experience as a geoscientist to look at imagery and data all day on your laptop of what you're studying and then still be completely blown away when you see that thing in person. In addition to the beauty of the ice and the snow dynamics, glaciers truly leave a mark on the landscape as they flow and they have such a big impact on the local hydrology and the ecosystem. And I just love getting to see that up close. Yeah, that's, that's great. I feel like you're right in that like, you can look at an image all day long and it can only tell you so much about, about that feature. But as soon as you're there in person looking at it, it's always something that is just so like, awe-inspiring, I feel like, or that is... I don't know, you just get something different from seeing it in person rather than seeing it on satellite imagery. Definitely. Um, and so tell us a little bit about some of the recent field work that you've done. So um, 
speaking of which, because you just recently got back from Alaska doing some field work up there. Yes. So for that trip, I was very lucky to get to go up and actually see a field site this time. I didn't actually go to the Antarctic Peninsula for my master's. This was really fun. And essentially, I was working with, well, we worked alongside the USGS. I was very lucky to have that partnership because they have a whole hut up there and system and um, a lot of great people to work with up there. So I flew into Anchorage, Alaska, and then we helicoptered out to the USGS hut right on Wolverine Glacier, which is a new a newer study site for our um, research group here at BSU. It's also a partnership with Idaho State University. So we have a bunch of gear up there on that glacier, including some GPS instruments, seismic instruments, weather station, and my job up there was essentially to take all that gear down and store it for the winter so that it doesn't get destroyed by six meters of snow in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they get a lot of snow for sure. <laughs> they do, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's so awesome. And um, as a field experience, just how was that for you? It was awesome. Yeah, I have limited glacier trekking experience, so it was really fun to get to use my split board. I got a little bit more um, glacier safety training, and the USGS crew is just incredible. They were super helpful with the things that I hadn't done before, and it was a really great learning experience. And it's just beautiful up there. The glacier was lovely. Um, We actually didn't see very many animals. I was expecting to see a bear or something, but we got away just seeing a bunch of birds. (laughs) That was fun, too. For a uh, a non-glacier person, what is a split board? Ah, a split board is some gear I just got. I'm pretty new to it still. It is a snowboard that you can split apart into two skis. So when you're walking up, it's often used in, like, backcountry travel. So when we were walking up the glacier, I split them apart and walked up like backcountry skis. And then when you're riding down, we actually didn't do this this time, but I could theoretically put them back together and snowboard down. Wicked. Yeah, it's pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Sounds like uh, something that um, a lot of classes also, well, maybe not a lot, but there are classes here at BSU that also teach that type of um, backcountry sort of travel, so the split board. Yeah, I should look into those, honestly. It would be great to get some actual training with that. (laughs) Yeah, be cool. It's so awesome that you do that. I'm just, like, amazed by it. We just hike up volcanoes. I don't know that that takes much effort. Just volcano hiking, yeah. Hey, there was a glacier on Via Rica, so. That's true. And, in fact, Rainy was there with us at Via Rica looking at glaciers, freaking out about the volcano. But Telling us us all these facts about glaciers that we didn't know we wanted to know, but we did. Oh, yeah. I am mind-boggled by volcanologists because that volcano was scary. <laughs> well, we're mind-boggled by glaciologists because we know nothing about it. And also, I mean, glaciers can be really scary places as well. That's um, true. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of that, have you ever felt in danger or has anything ever happened in the field or have you heard anything about anyone being in danger on a glacier? That's a great question. I hear about it a lot. There are often accidents in Greenland and Antarctica. I wouldn't say often, but every year you do hear stories. But I fortunately haven't had any really dangerous experiences. Um, I guess considering I'm often in avalanche or Lahar territory, it can just be scary being there and you have to be prepared. But we've been lucky so far. Not completely. Good. <laughs> yeah. 
That's great. Um, so, Rainy, uh, if you could describe your work using an analogy, what would it be? Oh, I love this question. And if I can, I'm going to bring it back to a previous podcast episode from Brian Rosenblatt, actually, who's here with us. I loved his analogy of describing a volcano as a horn or a brass instrument. And I'm not trying to start any drama on the podcast, <laughs> but I would argue that glaciers are a full orchestra. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, hear me out. You have the percussive cracks and the fractures of the ice as it stretches and crevasses, and it slips across the rock at the bed. And then I would even say there's a timpani as the calving event is occurring at the terminus. And then you have the wind section, which is the intricate glacier hydrologic system, which actually changes in size and tone throughout different points in the year. And as geophysicists, we use different instruments to listen to all of these different events or songs, if you will, to paint a picture of the processes happening throughout the body of the ice. Similar to what you do at volcanoes as well. It's just beautiful. I that is beautiful. <laughs> I know. A I small like... tear coming from my eye. <laughs> Same. Yeah, I feel like that was one of the best analogies that we've had. Oh, wow. Well, no offense to you guys, <laughs> actually. Sorry, Sorry Brian. <laughs> had to one-up you. Uh, compared to mine, it was like a really great analogy. Um, but that's really beautiful to think about how these structures make all these different types of of noises essentially on um, these songs and yeah as scientists we use our instruments to sort of record those and and interpret them mm-hmm. it's so much fun i have another question for you yes Scott. what is a calving event and what is a terminus oh great question i'm sorry i wasn't clear about that a nope, calving no event <laughs> if you imagine a glacier we often see pictures or at least i do i see pictures of glaciers flowing into the ocean and a calving event is when icebergs break off and splash into the ocean and they just float away. That's how icebergs are formed. And if you look on YouTube, there's lots of like catastrophic iceberg events and calving events you can look up that are pretty fun to watch. They can be really noisy. Yeah. Oh, and a terminus is just the end of the glacier where that, what we call the calving front is, mm-hmm. where the calving events are happening. It's the edge of the ice. Yeah, Great I definitely question. see how that is percussive. Yeah. <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Super awesome. Okay, um, so we're going to get into a segment of our podcast, Rainy, where we ask you to describe your research to three different sets or groups of people. Um, this is kind of informal, but it also gives you a chance to sort of practice your elevator pitch, if you will, to um, different, different people. So the first group that we have is, how would you describe your research to a fourth or fifth grade class, or an elementary um, grade level? Fifth grader. Mmm, I love this. Okay, so imagine a mountain that gets lots and lots of snow every year. Some of that snow on the mountain never melts. It's always there. So every year you get more and more snow and that snow is pressed down and it gets heavier and heavier as more snow falls until it forms ice. And that creates a big frozen river which flows down the mountain. This is a glacier. And as a glaciologist, someone who studies glaciers, I look at how fast that river, the frozen river flows down the valley, how much snow there is every year, 
how much snow or ice melts every year because of the sun and how the glacier's size, like its thickness or how tall it is or its length, changes every year. That was a really great explanation. Um, okay, the next uh, group would be, how would you describe it to maybe an undergraduate or a high school student or someone who's not in our field but is slightly older and um, knows maybe something a little bit about glaciers but not everything? Undergrad. Okay, so I'm going to use my master's work as an example. I use observations of surface speed, glacier thickness, and estimates of annual snowfall, snow melt, and submarine melt, which is melting due to the contact of ice with seawater, as inputs into a numerical model or a computer program, which can tell us how the glacier might respond to future changes in air and ocean temperatures. That's a pretty articulate um, description of what you do. Very concise. Yeah, I think uh, anyone could understand that. That's awesome. Okay, and the last group is how would you describe your research to a professional at a conference? Expert. Okay, so for my work here with Dr. Ellen Enderlin, we use a width and depth integrated ice flow model to assess the controls on ice dynamics at Crane Glacier since the collapse of the Larsen B ice shelf on the eastern Antarctic Peninsula in 2002. We use satellite-derived observations of surface speed, elevation, thickness, in addition to state-of-the-art estimates of surface mass balance and submarine melt rate to constrain the dynamic history of the glacier since 2009. And then we allow the model to evolve for several decades. And our res results suggest that glaciers can take several decades to geometrically adjust to ice shelf collapse at their terminal boundary. Wow, that was amazing. That was such a great description. And every time I hear these, I always think like, that person's doing the coolest type yeah. of research ever. <laughs> um, so thanks, Rainy. That was, that was awesome. Good job. Um, okay, so another really serious question. Mm -hmm. um, how would you solve a scientific problem if you were from, let's say, Jupiter's moon Europa? Ooh, I love this question. If I were from Europa, I think I would obviously be able to travel beneath the ice because Europa is covered in ice, and I would be able to learn about subglacial processes, which I think would revolutionize our understanding of ice shelves, ice sheets, sea ice, and all of that jazz here on Earth. I think if I were from Europa, I would also be a lot more interested in the life question, whether there's life on Europa, because I know this has been a question in the scientific community. So perhaps if I were from there, I would know a lot of the life that's there, so I would be able to <laughs> teach earthlings about what lives on Europa, or at least know how to investigate it. I think that could be really cool. It's a lot of research I know nothing about, but it could be very cool. That's so awesome. I love how that tri um, ties into your astrophysics background, too. So, you oh, yeah. know, we're bringing you back. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> full, uh, full 360 here. 
The memes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you could describe maybe um, one life form, like real or made up, that you would find that would be so ideal and so awesome to find on Europa. Real or you... made up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, man. I imagine it would be some kind of sea creature. And I love dolphins. So perhaps a dolphin with a human head. That's what I'm going to go with. What about like, that'd be ice freaky. dolphin? Ooh, <laughs> that would be very cool. A dolphin that travels through, like, glacial channels and... Subglacial lakes. That would be very has cool. Ice flowing through their their body. That would be Whoa. pretty pretty wild. They can drink ice. <laughs> that would be pretty wild. I love this. I love it too. I think we're on to a movie idea. Yeah, that's great. I'll call Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's ask some other fun random questions to you because okay. um, this is this is like just what we do. Um, <laughs> So, Rainy, I'm really interested in um, how you would try to sell me eggnog if we lived in Florida and it was the summertime. Oh, my gosh. This is the wrong question for me because I am a vegan. Oh, yeah. I would go, I would try and sell coconut eggnog, which is very good. And I think you can make it very tropical. You got some good spices. I personally love coconut eggnog over ice. I think it would be easy to sell. It could be pretty similar to a pina colada. That sounds delicious. Yeah. That does actually sound delicious. I think all of us think of eggnog as like a winter thing that's... I think of it as a disgusting winter thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's Not not a fan over here. (laughs) Well, now we know that. Don't buy eggnog for Scott for Christmas. (laughs) Yes, please. Rainy, a question. Yes. What is your favorite glacier? (sighs) This is hard. Uh... (laughs) Right now, I think Wolverine Glacier is my favorite because I just went there and it was incredible. And I'd never been to Alaska even before. And it was just so amazing. So many glaciers up there. I was trying not to squeal on the airplane. (laughs) Um, So I would go with that for now. You got a window seat. I did on one of the flights. Yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) Um, I was. I think during my undergrad, my favorite glacier was Rainbow Glacier, which is on Mount Baker, and it's this little glacier that actually looks like a dolphin. Speaking of dolphins, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was so cute. Yeah, I was not expecting you to say dolphin. Like <laughs> the yeah. name Rainbow Glacier and dolphin do not mix for me. So that's great. It's just surprising. Um, Rainy, how quickly do glaciers move, speaking of which. Um, do they all move at the same rate? Do they move at different rates? Uh. Good question. Yeah, it really varies. It depends on where you are. Um, in general, I think Wolverine moves mm, five meters per month, which is pretty Whoa. slow, I think, depending on the time of year. Um, Crane Glacier moves, let's see, about 200 meters per year. What is that per day? I'd have to calculate it out. But it's it's a little bit faster, but still pretty slow. But our friend Jukes Lou in the department is actually studying a surging glacier up in Alaska, which increases its velocity by 10 to 100% for a period of months as it's surging. And that moves, I think they recorded up to 30 meters per day at one point, Whoa. which is so fast. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound that fast just like as a walking pace, but for a glacier, that one is shredded. It that almost, will destroy a glacier. Yeah, that sounds like you could almost see it moving as yeah. you're there. It's pretty wild. Huh. 
And you don't also usually see that. Though. Not good for instruments on the glacier itself. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> we know how well some of that went. It was difficult to find a lot of the instruments. Yeah. So, Rainy, what or how do glaciers interact with the biosphere? Ooh, great question. I think of it in terms of water resources often. Um, so, glaciers often have huge um, rivers that come out of the terminus or at different parts. Um, and those are often a huge water source for the local animals. And they also have a lot of um, really important minerals because they grind up the rock beneath. Um, so it leaves a lot of nutrient-rich water um, leaving the glacier. And that supports a lot of plant life, wildlife, and um, a lot of communities rely on the water um, as a water source too. I know when I was in Washington, I lived up in Bellingham for a bit, and a lot of that water was glacier fed. Um, so if those glaciers are shrinking, our water resources are declining as well. Yeah. It's scary. <laughs> it is scary sometimes. <laughs> yeah. We have so much fresh water just stored in those glaciers at the moment. It's true. It's worrisome to think about what's going to happen if all of them just disappear. <laughs> um, so Rainy, uh, I have another question for you. Um, obviously, because we're just asking you a bunch of questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we've been talking a lot about, asking you a lot about, you know, life forms and, um, you know, different types of, like, biosphere interactions, and that includes animals. So I'm actually really mm -hmm. curious to know what your spirit animal is. Oh. Let me think. I used to say rabbit. But I might go with marmot today. I love marmots, and I eat a lot of vegetables. I think I always went with rabbit because I eat a lot of vegetables and I run around a lot. Um, yeah, pretty quiet most of the time. And you're cute and fluffy. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm very cute. <laughs> My ears are huge. I have a tail. Um, yeah, you know what? I can't decide. Rabbit or marmot? Yeah. Can you uh, demonstrate a marmot sound for us? <gasps> I do like a little whistling sound. Yeah. It's really cute. That's super awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Rainy, it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Um, you're super awesome, and I think the work that you're doing is just going to be phenomenal, um, not only for our department, but just for the STEM sciences in general. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I can't wait to see what other episodes come out. It's such a great idea. That's awesome. So thank you for having me. Well, we're actually going to end with um, a new segment that we're doing today uh, where Scott actually gives us a little bit of, um, I don't know, epic news. So some of the cool events which are happening in the news right now. So, Scott? All right. Here's an epic event for you. I'm going to make it short and sweet. So... The same phenomenon that causes aurora, magical curtains of green light often visible from the polar regions of the Earth, causes something called the mesospheric ozone layer depletion. This depletion could have significance for global climate change. A Japanese spacecraft called Arase collected a bunch of chorus wave data. Chorus waves are a type of electromagnetic plasma wave generated from the sun, interacting with the Earth's magnetosphere. So. The precipitations of these electrons from the sun have a wide energy range, enough energy to penetrate our atmosphere to lower than 100 kilometers. 
So this is exactly where the mesospheric ozone lies. And these computer simulations done by this research team in Japan show that these electrons immediately deplete the ozone layer in the mesosphere by more than 10% upon hitting it. So, what can we do about it? Nothing. <laughs> well, I guess, uh, you know, this comes back to my podcast where I said that if I were from the sun, I was going to see how many solar flares it took to take you guys out. Yep. I guess it's really not going to take that many. Confirmed. This is Ashley Bose's fault. <laughs> yeah, sun, sorry, guys. The sun creature, Ashley Bosa. I mean, I was <laughs> creature. sun creature. Oh, that's super interesting to know. Um and these electrons are what are causing those those lights in the sky anyways, right? Like that's yep. what's producing that aurora exactly. borealis so effect. So it, it's happening whenever we see the beautiful northern lights, we know that our ozone is <laughs> slightly depleting, or maybe not so slightly, in the mesosphere. It is, that's disheartening. <laughs> Do we but know, has this been going on for years? Do they think? I think it has, but we've never known about it until recently. Maybe it's become more substantial recently. That's so interesting. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, more studies need to be done. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. for, That's sure. for sure. That's for sure. It's cool that they were able to figure that out, though. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that they're just modeling some of these these electrons in the ozone layer. be interesting to read that, um, that paper, and maybe we can put a, a link to it if Scott can find it um, for people to read on yes. our website. Uh, great. Well, thanks, Scott. And uh, I just want to give a really big thank you to Rainy as well. Um, Rainy, also, do you have any shout-outs for anyone? Oh, shout-outs to the CryoGuard Lab. There's so many people that have supported me throughout the last couple years. My advisor, Dr. Ellen Enderlin, she's awesome. And my cat, Cleo, she keeps me strong. She's awesome. We love pets on this show. Um, Thank you so much, Rainy. It's been awesome being able to interview you. And yeah, come back and talk with us. (laughs) For sure. This was so fun. Thank you. Thanks, Rainy. Stay cool. All right. (laughs) Well, that was an epic conversation. We'd like to thank all of our listeners. Tune in next time for another Epic Earth podcast. Welcome everybody to another episode of Epic Earth. I'm Ashley Bosa and today I have Brian Rosenblatt. Hey. Scott Gavine. Hello. And today we're interviewing Rainer. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Epic Earth. I'm Ashley Bosa and today I have Rose <laughs> Rosenblatt. From my work with Dr. Ellen Enderlin. <laughs> I can't say that again. Yeah. That's weird. Um, can we yeah. like, pause it? Yeah. <laughs>